0: Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences.
1: Okay, so good evening everyone and welcome to this Forum for Philosophy event. And the topic for today's event is punishment. So punishment is something that happens in every human society in one way or another. It takes many forms across the world, from mass imprisonment to corporal punishment among the most extreme forms of punishment, namely the death penalty. And even if we focus only on the United Kingdom, the way we punish has changed a great deal throughout history, from the gruesome public spectacles of the Middle Ages involving fire and steel, exile to the colonies in the Victorian era, to the notorious ASBO and the prison system of modern times. And punishment is also one of the great social questions. The criminal justice system is always a big ticket election issue. The proper treatment of those who commit crimes is a thorny ethical topic. And even the humble treadmill has its roots as an instrument of punishment. For example, it being used widely in Brixton prison in the 1800s, not far from where I am now in the LSE. So for tonight's event to think about punishment, we've brought together three world experts on punishment who each come from rather different perspectives. We have Professor Anthony Duff, perhaps the most influential living philosopher of punishment, who has outlined an influential theory that sees punishment as a way for societies to communicate blame towards those who commit crimes. We have Dr. Anastasia Chamberlain, a leading criminologist, who has written on the sociology of punishment and published an award-winning book on the experience of women in prisons. And we have Peter Dawson, who has long experience working in prison policy and has served as the governor of two prisons. And Peter is currently director of the Prison Reform Trust. And of course, we have you, the audience, so please feel free to share your questions with the panel and we'll get to them uh, later in the session. So just to get a sense of what we're talking about, I'd like to start with a very general question, perhaps um, starting with you, Anthony. So what is punishment? What's the difference between punishing someone and the various other ways in which we do things to people um, against their will?
2: Okay, thanks. Okay. So in concrete terms, as you pointed out, punishment takes many forms. It can exist in imprisonment, in a fine, in probation, in unpaid, compulsory work, and so on, and so on, and so on. In abstract terms, punishment can be roughly defined as imposing something that's meant to be burdensome on an offender for their offence. So That's how punishment is distinctive. It's meant to be burdensome. It's meant to something meant to make you suffer. That seems to be wrong. It's meant to be burdensome. It's meant to burden you. It's imposed because you committed a crime and for that crime. with other kinds of compulsory measure, they might coerce you. You might be detained as quarantine, you might be detained under the Mental Health Act, but those aren't meant to um, burden you, nor they impose for an offense. The punishment is for an offense, it's a response to an offense. It's meant to be burdensome. And that's why it's problematic. What justifies imposing burdens on people? Which are meant to burden them. Um, What can justify that kind of practice?
1: That's a thought. So, so the idea is that part of the sort of purpose or the very nature of punishment is to be burdensome. Because I guess we often hear that, well, punishment or various practices surrounding punishment are a way to rehabilitate or to reform people. But your comment suggests that it's part of the very nature of punishment that it is burdensome or difficult. That's part of the very nature of what it is to punish someone.
2: Yeah, it can still be intended in certain ways to reform or rehabilitate, but still only in virtue of being burdensome in a particular way. Um, So you can see probation, for instance, or community service, as they're certainly meant to be burdensome, but they're also meant to be ways of rehabilitation, reintegration. Um, So say punishment is burdensome, necessarily, isn't to say it doesn't have some further constructive purpose. That's a further question to be addressed.
1: So how does this square, um, Anastasia, with the way that sociologists often think about um, punishment? So I guess one thing I'm interested in is that we have, you're both from very different backgrounds. One's a philosopher, one's a sociologist. And I'm wondering how your two perspectives um, sort of mesh or, or don't mesh on, on studying punishment.
3: Well, actually, I think um, I, I, I agree with Anthony. I think punishment is certainly intended to be burdensome. It's intended to be painful. Um, The word itself suggests that that's the purpose, ultimately. Um, Within that primary purpose, to inflict some sort of burden or pain on the offender or to retribute the offence that they may have committed, uh, there is obviously a range of other follow-up objectives, um, uh, as you suggested, that we might kind of delineate. Uh, Certainly in law, there is a suggestion that in different moments in time, Certainly when the political or cultural atmosphere allows, we might talk more of rehabilitation. Um, We might talk in different moments more about this notion of public protection or prevention. And so the different kind of um, justifications of punishment kind of travel in in, in waves of popularity in different political, cultural uh, kind of points in time. But ultimately, Yes, punishment kind of targets both the offender in in terms of intending to cause some kind of pain or to retribute the offense they might have committed. And in so doing, it seeks to communicate to the rest of us or to perhaps to law abiding citizens, if you like, um, that we have a set of institutions or a state which we can trust to restore any sense of unsettled order. Uh, that may have been caused in the event of a crime. So, uh, strictly speaking, uh, although it's not an entirely satisfying, sociologically speaking, answer, according to the law, the role of punishment is to respond to crime. Um, Now, whether or not it manages to do that is a completely different question, of course.
1: So, I mean, Peter, I was looking at some of the studies that the prison reform your group has carried out and they were looking at sort of prisoners attitudes towards their own punishment and I think one thing that came out was that many many prisoners they feel a sense of confusion as to the purpose of their punishment. Some of them said they weren't entirely sure um, what the aim of the ill treatment was because sometimes people speak of the importance of rehabilitation but then at the other on the other hand, they're being asked to slop out their toilets or they have been in the past and they're being kept in conditions that feel to them quite um, burdensome. And they felt in some, at least some of the testimonies and the research that you'd carried out suggested people were being pulled in different directions. And I found this was an interesting observation about the psychology of, of, of the prisoner, that they were had this sort of uncertainty about um, the aim um, that society was, was driving at when they, they imprisoned them. I wonder if that... Sort of rings true to you. Oh, sorry, I think you're muted.
0: No, somebody had to do it. Um, I mean, for, for, there, there's lots of different views amongst prisoners. I mean, it's not, it's, in general, I would say that prisoners are, you know, it's not a liberal population. Um, but I, I would distinguish between the purposes of a sentence and what punishment is. Um, I mean, I've you know, I've, earned, I've earned a living earned a living through administering punishment so it's you know it's of more than academic interest to know what the what the moral justification is for doing that um and and for me i mean it's certainly to inflict pain to inflict discomfort to impose a burden as anthony said but fundamentally i've always thought of it as as the regulation of retribution so if if retribution goes unregulated, then the consequences for a society and for individuals are very extreme and very unpleasant and very unfair. Um, and you know, looking far enough back, then prisons were originally there for an individual, normally a wealthy individual, to impose punishment on another individual who owed them money. Um, So the the regulation of punishment by the state removes some of those most adverse consequences um, and makes it safer and perhaps contributes to a more ordered society, as Anna said. But that's why we're punishing, because the alternative is worse. We, We may then choose to try and achieve something more constructive through the sentence that a court passes, and whether or not we choose to achieve something more constructive, we've absolutely got um, duties that go with punishing. So if you take on that task, it comes with duties which you cannot avoid. And if you choose to, then you are you're failing your society and you're acting in an uncivilized and immoral way. Um, but but why, why we punish is that we haven't got a better idea, I think. So, if
1: I'm getting you right, is is part of the thought that punishment's like this great pressure release valve that if we didn't have a regulated sort of state-sanctioned way to do this, there would be other forms of non-state punishment that would be worse. Is that part of what you're driving at?
0: Yeah, no, it is. It is absolutely. And I think um, if you look at situations where uh, sort of societal norms have broken down, that's what you see. I mean, I think, for example, you know, at the end. The end of most wars if you know if there is a victor the victor exacts retribution normally in pretty unspeakable and extreme ways because there is there is no regulation in that situation or the regulation is inadequate um, so it's a it's a rather bleak view of human nature but I don't think it's an inaccurate view
2: okay. Can I come in there. Uh, just with a couple of points. I think it's interesting that prisoners are unclear or confused about why they're there, why they're doing, why they're being punished. And there are two important points there. One is that, of course, they're confused because there's no clear account to be given. Sentences have their own different views. They have a whole range of possible aims they're pursuing: retribution, deterrence, and so on and so on and so on. There's no clear story to be told at the level of policy or of individual judges. So, of course, they're confused. But the more important point is that is crucial to the justification of punishment, it can be explained and justified to those who are punished. And very often prisoners are portrayed as simply passive objects. We punish them, we lock them up, and they're, they're the other. They're the enemy, the outsider, we punish them. It's crucial it seems to me if they would be treated as citizens, as responsible agents. We must be able to say to them, here's why you're being punished, and seek their own understanding and their own response. And that seems to be crucial to any Remotely civilized system. On that score, we fail abysmally, I think. But that's an important part of what could possibly justify this kind of practice. Justify to those on whom it's imposed.
1: Yeah, that seems seems right to me. Um, so I find what you're saying is interesting, um, Peter, because I think I was when I've sort of taught punishment before, and at least some philosophers who write about punishment think it's something that is fundamentally unjustified and even the thing we might abolish. And I suppose it made me think, well, is it possible to imagine a society that doesn't have this institution of punishment whatsoever? And you were suggesting, well, that would be a pretty grim place to be. And um, I suppose I'm wondering if um, Anna has any sociological insight into this point because some people invite you to imagine this utopian um, sort of world in which punishment is seen is abolished in the same way as we've moved away from certain types of more gruesome punishment in the past. Some people invite you to imagine this trajectory of social change in which um, the familiar punishments of sort of the modern world are also um, done away with um, and punishment sort of shrinks towards this vanishing point. But I wonder if that, um, from a sort of sociological perspective, is that is that sort of uh, a ridiculous image, or or, or not so much?
3: Uh, not so much. I mean, in sociology, very few things are <laughs> are ridiculous images, to be honest. So, um, I mean, I, I think I think I'm pretty. Um, um, I, I like Peter's uh, concept that punishment is a kind of regulation of retribution. I think there is a it's kind of an organized, state-sponsored uh, emotional reaction uh, that, that we really feel the need to, to express. Um, and, it, and it's a harmful, uh, painful kind of infliction of, of, of uh, a lot of kind of uncomfortable uh, experiences for, for the people that we choose to punish. So in that sense, I think there's something very interesting about how he, he conceptualized this. Um, Now, to say that there is some kind of allure or a desire uh, to punish or some kind of um, satisfaction that we we derive out of doing so is not necessarily to also say that we can't um, imagine a world where we don't need uh, to rely so much on punishment. Um, I can certainly imagine us reaching such a society being very difficult given the current state and and especially the current kind of obsession we have with punishment. We are certainly overusing punishment in many regards. We are punishing uh, perhaps more than ever uh, in in recent years. We are giving longer sentences. We are certainly kind of very um, invested in the institutions of punishment that we have at the moment, uh, economically, politically, culturally, emotionally. Um, so to move towards a future where, uh, we can imagine an ab- the abolition of prisons, for example, or, um, uh, or a more kind of decarcerative, uh, future is, is at the moment very difficult, but at the same time, I think it's certainly something we ought to try and do. Um, now I think certain things would have to happen for that to become a more realistic goal, uh, as optimistic as I am. So to, to get to that future where we don't need to rely so much on punishment, we need to change uh, structurally uh, a lot of things. Um, we need to uh, find other ways, you might say, through which we might express uh, certain feelings. Um, we might uh, need to channel certain um, anxieties and insecurities Um through um, other uh, means of communication. So therefore we need to come up with new structures, but also new ways of connecting and belonging that would mean we need to rely less on what we derive out of punishment on an emotional level. Uh, And we're certainly not anywhere close to that. Um, But I'm an optimist um, and I want to hope that perhaps we can move towards that future at some point, yeah.
2: The question What, how optimistic you can be, you talked about relying less on punishment. Mm. Abolishing certain modes of punishment, that seems absolutely right, but can we, if we want to aspire to abolish punishment altogether, the question is in, in favour of what? What would take its place? One worry is what comes in its place can be also, in various ways, worryingly oppressive. Here's an example.
0: Mm.
2: A famous abolitionist years ago um, called Bianchi, which is abolished punishment, he said, abolished punishment. Well, what do we do instead? Well, we have various kinds of informal process of mediation and so on, which can be quite oppressive. Also he said we need sanctuaries. Sanctuaries where people who've offended others are sent for a period until they can return to the community. Mm. Well, that's imprisonment, isn't it? But without any constraint. So, and, and there's a worry that we can, we can aspire to reduce the cruelty, the oppressiveness of our own system. Certainly, we can aspire to rely much less on punishment. We can mm. aspire to rely n- not at all on certain kinds of punishment, like imprisonment or death. But say we do without it all together, we need to get some idea of what what we do instead. And the answer is informal kinds of mediation. They have their own kinds of danger, I think, as social practices.
3: Oh, yeah. Sorry, Peter, go ahead.
0: Well, as you say, I I agree with that. I mean, I think the the challenge we face at the moment is, is excessive punishment. Um, and, and part of the reason for that, I think, is that is that there, there is a belief that punishment can do much more than it really can. So, you know, one of the reasons I think what I think is that it it kind of puts a a pretty severe limit around what you think punishment can actually achieve. Um, they, there's no evidence that I know of that punishment deters. Um, there's very limited evidence that punishment prevents. Crime. Um, there's very limited evidence, actually, that it protects the public in any meaningful way. And all of those things are claimed for punishment. And on the back of those claims, then people think that more punishment and more severe punishment achieves those aims more effectively. But, but I don't think it does. So that, that is an argument for extreme moderation in using something which is inherently destructive. Um, I mean, one of, the, one of the facts, I think, at the moment worldwide is that wealthy societies resort to punishment more than poor societies. I mean, Anna, I'm conscious I'm now straying into territory where I'm sort of on a panel with an expert and probably shouldn't. But, um, but part of the sort of uh, the learning that I received was that poor societies tend not to use imprisonment because they can't afford to have an economically productive person. You know, normally, you know, crime is a young man's game. Normally, the most productive member of society is doing nothing. Um, So they find ways of restoring uh, rather than punishing, uh, putting something right, which might be financial, might be through work. um, But It's not. It's not locking somebody up where they achieve nothing um, for potentially years at a time.
2: I think that's right. And also, it takes us to a deeper issue about the very notion of criminal law. And we're much too quick to reach for criminal law as the solution to various problems. We see some behavior we find unwelcome, or harmful, or disruptive, say, right, criminalize it, and then punish those who engage in it. So the move to criminal law, and that's punishment, is all too easy for politicians looking to be seen to take a stand. So there's a slogan of criminal law should be the last resort, which allows also punishment. We should find other, if we can, other methods of addressing harmful, destructive, wrongful behaviour, and use criminal law only if we have to. At the it's is far too easy to use it as the first resort, not the last resort, and that feeds into what Peter was talking about about overpunishment.
1: So earlier today, I was looking at some of the reports of public attitudes that the prison reform trust had put out, and they were suggesting that people that, well, there was two things that struck me. First was that the UK has sort of imprisons more freely than any other country in Western Europe. And the second was that there's a widespread view that among the public that we should punish more harshly than we currently do. So it seemed that we were already quite far along An extreme, and there was a desire among some people to go further. And then I guess you were saying there that um, you doubt the effectiveness in punishment in doing some of the things that people typically think it achieves. And I wonder is that is that evidence that people just have a sort of raft of false beliefs about the role that punishment plays in society, or do you think that they would still have this punitive urge even if you sat down and explained the limitations of punishing in this way? It's a really interesting. Sorry.
2: Sorry. There's also research of quite a lot of areas where the more you explain to people what goes on, the more you discuss it, the more you explain particular case and so on, the less punitive they become. So the punitive urge is often the initial urge, and then you discuss, you inform, you explain, and gradually, ah, in fact we shouldn't find it quite right so harshly after all. Sorry, PJ, that's
0: it. No, well, uh, it, it's, it's interesting. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, the, the other fascinating uh, piece of research, which has just been repeated by the Sentencing Academy, and thank you, Lewis, we've just published a report which um, features this finding, is that is that people are spectacularly poorly informed about punishment. So, um, you know, for example, three quarters of people, and this was a poll of over 3,000, think that Average sentence lengths have got shorter over the last 15 years or so. Well, you know, they've actually gone up very substantially. Uh, one, One in 50 of the people polled thought that the amount of time you spend in prison on a life sentence has gone up hugely. Well, it's, you know, it's almost doubled. So 49 out of 50 people have no idea that for the most serious crimes, successive governments, it's not party political, it's every party that's done this, have massively increased the punitive element of sentences. So the the idea that excessive increased punishment somehow produces public confidence, that it satisfies this retributive urge, is is for the birds. I mean, it's it's not true because people don't notice that it's happening. which is, which is hugely frustrating and just speaks to an enormous waste of you know, human potential as well as as well as well cash.
1: I mean, I wonder what explains this widespread ignorance people have in the face of policy that seems to satisfy their desires, but they seem not to update their beliefs to conform to what's actually going on on the ground. I wonder what explains that. Well, I, I
0: partly to what actually you're saying, that the... the Every time a politician says we are going to make the penalty more severe, I mean, normally following a crime that's attracted a lot of public attention, what I I think what people hear is they're making it more severe because it's not tough enough, or because it's been going in the wrong direction. So actually, the the attempt to reassure really just reinforces a mistaken
1: belief. so it's like this vicious feedback loop where governments promise very punitive measures because they know it's sort of democratically satisfying, which then sends the signal to people that there's a problem that needs to be solved, namely that we're not harsh enough. And then this generates the, it's a scary situation to be in if that's the, if that's the truth, because it seems to be this self-reinforcing um, phenomenon.
0: Well, it is, and it's also, it's become a point of a sort of political definition. So in this country, both main parties seek to define themselves by reference to the other side not being tough enough. It, it comes a way to distinguish yourself, and for you know, the late 1990s with New Labour, it was a way of signalling that New Labour was different from Old Labour, um, and that's, that's not gone away. Yeah.
2: It's also an issue in public education. Which goes right back to what happens in our schools, and people aren't taught enough about the system of government, including the penal system. Um, so it's not surprising they're ignorant. Um.
1: So I mean, I guess the, the other alternative is, and this is often appears thinking of like the sort of tabloid culture that generates these retributive urges. People often discuss the prison system in the the Nordic countries. Um, and often, often claim it's not harsh enough. I remember when I first was an undergraduate, there was a, a meme going round that showed my um, undergraduate halls um, up against um, a cell in a Norwegian prison. And unfortunately for the University of Glasgow, our um, university halls were coming off worse in that um, comparison. But people sort of use these types of images to say, well, these these types of prisons, um, they aren't sort of satisfying the retributive, the retributive aim of, of punishment. And I wonder if that's. Um, is, there, is there a point at which sort of prisons can become too lenient to fulfill the role or is that a ridiculous um, sort of an idea? Because obviously these. Countries that use these systems, they're effective in the sense that they have the lowest recidivism, the lowest reoffending rates um, in Europe. But I suspect there are still people who say that, despite their um, effectiveness on that scale, they're still not um, fulfilling their their purpose of of punishing in the appropriate way. I wonder if that's something that um, there's any sympathy for.
2: You're still locked up. You've, you've yeah, lost the liberty.
3: Yeah, locked up, and. Um... Certainly the research on Nordic prisons is not suggesting that they're actually particularly lenient. Um, It's suggesting that there's a a sense of legitimacy in how they are run, perhaps Um, that um, the rules and the, and and the order of the regime is perhaps uh, more transparent and clearer to the prisoners. Um, But there's also a certain kind of um, idealization of the Nordic prison and, 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 uh, more recently, we are we are seeing kind of um, findings from research that are suggesting that there are significant harms, obviously, experienced in these prisons because they are prisons. Um, and yes, they have more progressive uh, kind of elements in them. Uh, there is a, more of a focus on rehabilitation, on education, on certain opportunities being available to the prisoners that are uh, certainly very important. Um, but nonetheless, these are still prisons. Um, and I don't think they're experienced as necessarily lenient by the prisoners themselves.
0: I think that's really important. It's, um, I mean, there, there are interesting things about the Nordic model. I mean, third, One of the things is that actually you can go to prison in the Nordic countries for less serious offences than you do here. Um, there will be people in prison for fine default, which is almost unheard of now. I, I mean, the, the, the huge difference, I think, is the length of time that people spend there. So you know, if, you, if you knew you were going to spend 20 years in very good conditions, or 10 years in pretty poor conditions, you'd go for 10 years in pretty poor conditions. Um, and it's our, it's our sentence lengths, which are so exceptionally severe. And it's actually our sentence lengths, which give us that massive capita prison population figure. The number of people being sent to prison has fallen dramatically over the last decade but um, possibly just because our criminal justice system has ceased to operate terribly effectively, but there are far fewer people going to prison on short prison sentences. But the people who go to prison for serious crime are going there for, for much longer and, and way beyond most European comparisons.
2: i also there's a difference in attitudes towards prisoners um, between all the countries and what's still true here and also in the mm-hmm. States, even more so. I was, I, was I was in Norway when the Anders Breivik trial was going on. He was the man who killed ninety-something people um, in a terrorist attack, and this is his trial. And there was a very sober, serious debate among Norwegians about what the appropriate um, resolution was, because the maximum penalty was twenty-one years. That's the most you could be sentenced for twenty-one years. And the real debate is this: sensible, is it adequate, or do we need more than that? And the same thing when they talk about his prison conditions. He appealed on, his, on human rights grounds, he hadn't got enough um, facilities in his prison. And he had three, he had three cells to himself. And again, there's a sober serious debate in Norway about this kind of, whereas you imagine that happening in Britain, you wouldn't find that kind of debate, you'd find hysteria about this monster, how he's, how he's been banged up for life, come what may. So I think there is an interesting different attitude towards offences and defenders, um, which I think, goes quite, I think goes quite deep in the two societies.
1: So I wonder what explains that sort of difference, because presumably there's some link between the the way that societies punish and the how punitive populations are, and presumably how punitive societies are is something that changes. Um, I'm not sure people would agree that societies become less punitive over time, um, but I wonder what the factors are that influence how punitive people in a, in a culture are and whether that's something that we should try and influence. Is there a way to try and make people less punitive? Um, because it seems obviously government policy is going to be responsive to this sort of property that sort of groups have, um, and presumably some groups have this property more than others. Um,
2: managed to cut its prison sentences by about half in the 1960s, was it? Um, a government initiative, which then succeeded in persuading the population at large. Well, you need to be part of a whole campaign of, edu- of re-education. Um, but it can be done, um, and it can fail drastically. I remember when they tried to introduce unit fines in the 1990s in Britain, so how much you we were fined was that you were to be fined not just a amount of money, but a certain multiplier of your weekly income. It's obviously fairer. If you're rich, you pay more cash than if you're poor, if you, you both pay a week's way, a week's income. That's you know, a sensible innovation. So it was introduced, actually, by Conservative government, by Keynes Clark. And there was uproar from the popular press, the tabloid press, as a magistrates. So you might get be paying £1,000, so I'm only paying £10 for the same offence. And the popular press, the, the popular up up all one, and the government backed out rapidly. That's how it can fail. But you, you can imagine a campaign to, to persuade people that this is a rational way to go. It involves serious public, public debate, public information, and so on. And you can hope, 1st I'm here getting towards Anastasia, be optimistic, you can hope it would, in the end, succeed, if done, but it's got to be done carefully and thoroughly. But after all, think of the death penalty. Um, when he was when he was abolished by Parliament, I thought at that stage, given a referendum, it would have stayed in force with a massive majority. And that's it stayed true for quite a long time. Maybe by now, if he had a referendum, maybe it wouldn't be reintroduced. We could hope that
3: there's still a lot of public uh, support for the um, death penalty in this country. I mean, I think only a couple of years ago it, it went below fifty percent. So it's uh, yeah, certainly. So. Um, Within the public, um, there are, we might say, particular po- pockets where there is um, uh, quite a significant level of punitiveness. And, and I think especially in some European studies on punitiveness, there is an indication that particular groups of people are more prone to be punitive or to support um, kind of the use of harsh or hostile punishments. So We know, for example, that men are more likely to be punitive um, in in contrast to women. We know that older uh, men in particular are more likely to be more punitive. We know that um, uh, people who um, uh, follow particular political ideologies, especially far right wing ideologies, are more likely to support uh, the return of the death penalty and other kind of corporal types of punishment that are considered more hostile. Um, So there are certain correlations that we can identify uh, in order to better understand kind of the prevalence of punitiveness. Um, So we might say that if we are thinking about tackling punitiveness, um, uh, we might think about kind of changing uh, or or addressing various political um, kind of waves uh, uh, towards more authoritarian uh, perspectives cultural shifts, especially in terms of gender relations, toxic kind of cultural shifts in terms of gender relations seem to be associated with punitiveness. So there are certainly particular um, issues that are um, related to punitiveness that can be addressed. And then there are waves or moments in time when punitiveness seems to increase. So for example, we know uh, in the... um, um, in the build-up to the EU referendum, um, there was a um, kind of a, an increase in particular hate crimes that can be deemed as especially punitive in their nature. Um, so there are particular kind of political moments that will kind of enable the opportunity to express punitiveness more than others. Um, so I guess there is there is an answer there in terms of um, shifting or resisting certain kinds of politics.
0: I have a a question for Anna Lewis. Um, I've got an expert. Um, One of the things that ministers and MPs will often say is that um, we we know that prisons are largely um, populated by people who are poor um, and socially excluded, but we also know that crime is largely concentrated in communities that are and and mps and ministers will say it's particularly relevant at the moment given the last sort of the pattern of the last election result that where they hear the strongest demand for stronger punishment is in those poor communities and that people who are both victims and perpetrators you know that that's, that that is you know that's a common experience in those communities that that's where the demand for stronger punishment will come from. And you know, going back to your very first question, there is about what prisoners think. You know, when I worked in prison, the newspapers that were ordered were the Sun and the Daily Mail. Um, and and prisoners, you know, if you bothered to have the discussion, would largely support the death penalty. I would have said when I was working in prisons, um, and have a view that punishment achieved all those things that I say it doesn't. Um, and would probably go back to experiences in their childhood and to to justify that view. So I guess the question is, why why do we have this mystery that the the, the communities that stand to gain least, if you like, from inappropriate punishment tend to be so strongly in favour of it?
3: I'm not sure it's a mystery as such. I think it... it, it... At least to me, it makes sense because these are the communities that are mostly exposed to to the the issues, to the problems of crime. And so they feel strongest um, about wanting to do something about it. There is a a stronger desire to respond to to the problem of crime in those communities. And so punishment is a kind of a solution to them. Um, It's perhaps the only solution available. Um, That's in my mind, part of the issue there. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Prisoners are certainly um, uh, very punitive, at least generally speaking. There are some exceptions. Um, they will um, support kind of harsher penalties, especially in relation to certain kinds of offences. And they, um, and because of their upbringing, because of their own backgrounds, um, I think it, it's clear that for them, punitiveness. It's a common feature in their own uh, life narratives, I suppose. Um, It's something they have experienced and they kind of have come to naturalize and see as necessary, as unavoidable. Um, And so they see it as a kind of answer to the various injustices they might see around them. Um, It's part of the um, allure of punishment, uh, I think, that we tend to think of it as something that is... um, that it works, that it's something that is useful and that we need it um, and that we can't avoid it. And so in these particular communities that are used to uh, experiencing so much hostility, so much punitiveness and seeing the effects of crime, I think those particular communities are perhaps more likely to to feel that punishment is a natural kind of um, um, practice and and that it should be done uh, as a response to crime.
2: It comes back to an earlier point, that, as Anna says, punishment is an obvious, immediate response. Fact, how, how should we in fact sort out the problems that are faced by people in these poor communities? It also lies in a whole range of political, social, economic changes that need to be made um, in education, in welfare, and so on. Those are large-scale, long-term changes that are needed. Um, you want something immediate to respond to the crimes you're suffering. Or punishment is the obvious bet. It's there, really waiting for you. So it's, it's I'm right, it's the, it's the tempting, obvious solution. The solution is scare quotes. Um, and <laughs> that encouraged by the popular press and other and politicians too.
1: So to, I guess to, to think of where we've arrived at, we, we started off thinking that, well, some alternatives to punishment, such as sort of mediation, um, are perhaps undesirable for different reasons or could be oppressive in their own right. But there also seems to be a sort of widespread agreement that um, current policy is far too punitive in, in some ways. Um, so just thinking about directions for, for the future and directions for reform, is the thought that retaining elements of the current system but simply on a, on a reduced severity would be the optimal way to go? Or... Or is there right. sympathy for something more wholesale or, or a change that's more qualitative, not just reducing our reliance on prison um, in terms of the length of sentences, but that actual more radical shift towards a different um, way of punishing people?
2: I'm the second of those. Got, what will punishment need to be to be justifiable? Um, you think not just about sentences, you think about what role prison could play and what prisons could be like in order to be justifiable? What would, what would a prison be like that could be a place you can send a person with a clear conscience? If you think about attitudes towards offences and offenders. Are they seen as, are they portrayed as the other, the outsider, the enemy who is was locked up? Are they understood as fellow citizens who've done wrong, who need to be kept in, within, the, within the fold? Um, think about modes of punishment and how there can be punishments which a person can undertake of preserving their dignity, preserving their status as a citizen. So the the change is much more than just reducing severity. We need to rethink what punishment would need to be like in order to be something we can impose on each other and ourselves.
0: I I agree with that. And of course, as always, there are examples where that happens. There are pockets of exceptional practice where that's true. I mean, I I always felt when I was governing that the the punishment element of the sentence was actually very liberating you know I never had to consider whether I was doing enough to inflict pain because that's that's just done Um, and you know I challenge anybody whatever their views to visit a prison in the middle of the night um, and not understand the suffering that goes with being locked up with that Exile from the people that you love, um, not to mention all the sort of day-to-day ghastliness of being subject to the authority of um, people who you know may not care about you, um, may be younger than you, may abuse their authority, sharing yourself with someone you don't know, you're scared of, or all of those multiple indignities. But there are examples where it works, and um, I am. I, um, <laughs> that there are some real cliches about imprisonment, but which are very useful. So the, the first is the, the idea of someone having paid their debt um, and that punishment should be a really clear signal that, that that debt is paid so there is an opportunity to start afresh. And we've undermined that desperately through um, sentences like the IPP sentence, where we pretend that we can predict whether somebody is a danger in the future. But, but the second cliche, which um, I used a lot, and, and people who've you know, run the prison service over the last 20, 30 years have often quoted, is the sort of "there but for the grace of God go I argument. And the fact that if you work in prison and you spend time with people who are sentenced to imprisonment, you, you very quickly come to understand how easy it is to, to get there. You know, there, there's no pathology that explains why people go to prison. You know, there's immense amounts of contextual uh, information which is important, and bad luck, um, and you understand that very quickly, very easily if you work alongside prisoners for a living, and and both of those things I think chime with a public understanding, um, which which we don't really exploit, and it's not politically convenient uh, to exploit.
1: I mean, I, I, I find it striking that, I mean, in both of your answers, there's a lot in common, but in particular, the idea that the prison or the, the locking up of people is the optimal model, no, no. Um, or is that not the thought? Is, is there no, not, no, I, it? no, I'm
0: absolutely not saying that. I mean, for prison is absolutely the last resort. It should be reserved for only the most serious offences. There's a whole huge swathe of offending that we currently punish with short periods of imprisonment, which we shouldn't. You know, we, we should be concentrating on saying you need to you need to put something back, you need to restore the harm done, and that you know that could be financial, it could be through community service. There's quite a lot of, I mean, there, there are so many consequences that flow from a conviction which are punitive. Uh, even if you don't pay a fine, it affects your life in multiple ways for years to come. So we 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 use prison far too much for offences that we don't need to. But until we have something. Which we think is a better response to the most serious offending um we we should take the opportunities that that presents to say that that bit of the job is done so the bit of the job that is left is to is to help um is to help you rebuild this life that has been shattered and in the process of doing so we probably protect the public and we probably reduce the prospects of further offending but those are those are good byproducts of something which we should be doing as a, as a moral imperative,
2: really. If we ask what kind of punishment could be plausibly justified, we should start not with prisons, but other kinds of punishment. An ideal type, I think, is the, what's it called our community payback. is in so, so many hours of unpaid work. And that's the, that notion of paying back seems to really resonate there. Um, that here's what you've done. Here's the wrong you committed. You now owe something by way of reparation, um, not just to the victim, but to your fellow citizens and the community. And here's how you pay it back. You do these hours of useful work, and then you're fully restored. And when you're doing the work, you aren't in it's not like a shame you know, in some parts of the state you wear a uniform. No, you're just there as a person working away, um paying your debt in a literal sense. That's burdensome, it's a punishment. Um, you have to give up the many hours of your of your weak to doing it. Um, but it seems a way in which we can both make clear to the offender that you've done wrong and here's you need to pay it back. And by by doing the work, the offender thus, as it were, apologizes for what they've done and restores their good standing. That seems to be an ideal type of punishment. Um, of course, rather we're going to, to think about other, other modes of punishment. And in the end we then have to ask, well, can prison fit into this picture at all? Or is prison going to be the Final resort, where we have nothing else we can do except lock you up. We must be serious, as Peter said. It must be seriously the very last resort.
1: I mean, I, I agree with that. I mean, it certainly seems much more dignified and purposive to use a sort of community payback order involving work and contribution to the community. But I suppose the question is going to be how how burdensome would that payback have to be to satisfy some of the retributive urges that you started the discussion with. I mean, when crimes reach a certain level of severity, you you suspect that um, just planting the bulbs outside the local library won't be an onerous enough type of payback, and you might be forced towards really rather sort of burdensome forms of of work um, in order to satisfy that retributive urge that, that a lot of people seem to have. Um, but I certainly agree with what you're saying about um, these community payback schemes is, is on the face of things much more sort of attractive um than than using prison as a first resort
2: the question about what governments could get away with if you like how far could they reduce severity without using <laughs> public support altogether but they have to pursue a kind of reductivist strategy see how far you can gradually get persuading people again not just by of punishment but by a serious enterprise in public education and discussion so we don't need to be that punitive, that harsh, that destructive. And gradually, in the you might hope, again, if we're optimistic, that people will gradually come to see the sense of this. Um, again, the more they know what goes on, the more they know what goes on in a prison, which many people don't know at all, the more they know what goes on in the community service, the more they might see this is an
0: appropriate way of responding, we can hope at least.
1: So before we turn Whoops, see- sorry, on you go, Peter.
0: Well, I was just gonna say, I just wanna throw in my favorite statistic. Um, which is that a third of the country's adult male population has a criminal record. <laughs> so c- crime is an incredibly common thing. Um, so actually, most, most criminal process is, is just about drawing a line. You know, most, most sentences are fines. Um, it's, the, you know, it's the most common sentence. Um, community payback is something that we should use, actually, for quite serious offending. Um, so we, we just the, the, the retributive urge is important for serious crime. For for most crime, you know, for the things which are an irritation to our daily life and you know degrade the well-being of communities, the, the job of the criminal justice system most of the time is, is to deal with it and move on. Um, and that you know that's best done quickly. And you know one of the things which is so wrong with our system at the moment is that the gap between a wrong being done and any response to it is huge uh, because the system is, is broken. So any sense of satisfaction, any link between the act and the consequence uh, is, is broken because of delay. And um, that's, that, that's bad practice and undermines
1: public confidence, I would say. So relating to this is a question from uh, Jackie Roberts, who invite you to think about, well, are we punishing the offender or the family? So I suppose one thing when you put someone to prison is you also inflict this sort of collateral damage on those around them. And I suppose that seems to be relevant to the question of, well, what should the, what should the punishment of first resort be? Because it seems to be an unfortunate side effect if you inflict a harm on, for example, relatives of an offender for an offence that they've not committed. Um
2: and that's part of a whole range of issues about so-called collateral consequences of conviction. The effect on the family, the effect on the offender, after they've been punished, they find they can't get employment, other kinds of loss they suffer. Um clearly, they're an the important part of the picture. So if we are to punish, we need to take steps to make sure that the punishment doesn't impact harmfully on innocent bystanders, as it were. Um, also make sure there's a way back for the offender themselves, um, without these damaging further consequences. Um, one of the issues of that punishment isn't just punishment itself, but, as the questioner says, what it does to others and in the longer term. Um, and that needs to be addressed. But again, there are ways of addressing that by wider systems of welfare and support, um, which we currently lack.
3: Yeah, certainly prisoners so, and former prisoners will often say that the kind of the most painful aspect of of imprisonment, for instance, is is the kind of the long-term consequences that they experience because of having spent maybe sometimes six months or two years in prison, but the effects of those two years are very long-term. They impact um, their own sense of self. They completely change them as a person. Uh, And they certainly impact their relationships with family and, and, and especially with their children a lot of the time. Um, so there are certainly um, uh, kind of wider consequences to punishment that um, we kind of um, neglect if we assume that punishment is only directed on the offender. Yeah, for sure. Um, certainly um, the case of women prisoners, that's, that's one of the main kind of um, themes that they will often discuss that um, a majority of women are primary carers for children um, and that really severely impacts not only their own well-being but also their relationship with those children afterwards um, and, and therefore there are questions there about um, uh, how harmful is it kind of uh, ethical for punishment to be uh, especially when that harm ends up being extended on, on essentially innocent uh, people. So. Yeah, certainly it's um, it's a punishment that um, punishment involves several other characters and, and it's not only about the offender. Yeah.
1: So you've you've worked on um, women in prisons. Anna, is that right? And Peter, was are you governed a prison that used to be a woman's prison? Is that? Yes. Yeah. I'm wondering were there any unique sort of. because I guess women in prisons is a somewhat neglected topic in the sort of popular imagination. And it's only what, four percent of the prison? prison population overall are there unique sort of issues facing um, women who are imprisoned um, that you think that people aren't often aware of
3: yeah absolutely i mean i think i think part of the reason they're not um often kind of discussed in the public domain is precisely because women don't fit necessarily the stereotypical image of a criminal and uh, the majority of women in prison are uh, i think it's fair to say quite vulnerable. Um, they have higher levels of um, uh, mental and physical ill health. Um, um, they, they have severe, many of them, um, drug misuse problems. Um, and a, a very significant portion of them have been victims of sexual or domestic violence. So they have also been victims of very serious crimes themselves. They bring in a lot of trauma, a lot of abuse uh, upon reception into prison. So. We're talking about a very unique population of women, most of whom, by the way, are also not violent offenders. So there are also questions about um, why we're sending them to prison in the first place. Um, And and all these backgrounds of abuse, of trauma, their various vulnerabilities, of course, are exasperated um, in prison. So their kind of experience of punishment or the the pains of uh, of imprisonment imprisonment are arguably um, quite severe for women. Um, so we see that, for example, in uh, high levels, higher levels, uh, disproportionately high levels of self harm among women, um, and various other kind of um, kind of disturbing practices taking place in women's prisons. So it, it's a certainly very unique population that. Um, because of its minority status, it's not discussed, but also because it doesn't fit that image of the kind of the stereotypical criminal, we often kind of um, make the space in the public domain to discuss
1: women. Yeah, we have a question from Alexandra Grinfeld, who's asking about the um, how do media representations influence the way we view prisoners? And I suppose that chimes with what you're saying, and that women in prisons are this minority group that don't get nearly as much sort of media coverage as sort of the average male prisoner and i suppose people do get a lot of their information cultural information about the experience of prisoners from these types of media
3: yeah most of the information we get about crime in general we get from the media so um you know the the average public member of the public will know anything about crime from the news on tv for instance or from newspapers and uh, those stories, those crime stories that make it in the news are very particular stories. We only hear mainly about the most severe, the most violent crimes, the most kind of um, senseless crimes, um, and those kind of build a certain imagination about who are criminals, um, which is not really based on reality. Uh, Certainly, the vast majority of prisoners are not uh, violent uh, and much of crime is actually property based, for example, um, but that's not really what's represented in the media. So there is a misconception there, not only about prisons, but also about crime.
2: I ask a question of both, both Peter and, and Anna. So, in women's prisons, also in men's prisons, so many of the men in prison have mental health issues and other kinds of problems. One answer is we shouldn't be in prison at all. Or could we imagine prisons being so reformed that they couldn't places? it? Which can properly house and give a decent, constructive environment to people with these kinds of problems, and can prisons be reformed or can they only be abolished pretty crudely? Can you imagine a prison which would be a tolerable place to send a person?
0: Um, I mean, yeah, yeah, yes. I think I think women is a it's a particularly curious thing because everything Anna says is exactly right. Um, I, Bizarrely, there's really been quite a lot of sort of political agreement over that for 10 years or so, um, because campaigners have made the argument and they're they're kind of unarguable that the evidence base for it is so secure. And and understanding why things haven't changed, why we still send so many women to prison who are unwell um, and don't deserve to be there and all the collateral damage is greater, is is very hard to unpick. it feels to me that it's more about a sort of sclerotic government, both central and local. That the answer to those questions doesn't lie in the gift of one department. It requires a sort of cooperative approach, which we're is not very good at doing. Um, you know, the answer lies way before people get to court. Certainly, way before they get to to prison. And our our division between central and local doesn't just doesn't work very well. In solving those sorts of problems, I mean, as for whether you could have a prison which could look after people who were mentally unwell, properly, well, some some do. It's, I mean, it's a really difficult area because pr- prison causes mental health harm. Um, so people who may be you know, a bit unwell when they go into prison could become a lot more unwell through the fact of being there. Um, are you know are mental health system where people are detained, I wouldn't say it was always a great alternative as a way of holding people who you're not happy to have out in the community. Um, But prisons that were not overcrowded, that were not in 200 year old buildings, that had staff who had more than nine weeks initial training and more than a couple of weeks in service training every year, um, could all do a much better job than they're able to do at the moment.
3: I think just to add to what Peter um, is saying, I think we need to remember when thinking about this question of prison reform or abolition, um, prisons are actually very expensive to run um, and we have invested a lot um, in keeping them and in expanding them and in a lot of the time even in improving them and so on. So um, I think in order to consider seriously and realistically the, the, the prospect of reform, or of some form of decarceration or decrease of the prison population. Um, we need to think of ways of diverting all of that funding that's been in- invested in prisons onto actually addressing um, factors associated with offending in the first place on prevention. Um, on, we need to invest in communities, um, in, in young people, uh, in giving young people opportunities uh, in terms of education, in terms of healthcare. Um, and we have seen actually prison populations increase very much at the same time as we have defunded a lot of uh, and taken funds away from a lot of welfare uh, support. Uh, options, um, especially for those uh, who are more exposed to the vulnerability of crime and coming in contact with criminal justice. So actually, if we're thinking about addressing issues like mental health, and there's a serious mental health crisis in prisons at the moment, we need to think um, about that investment going back into those communities and and into those uh, sectors effectively. Um, So in that sense, I think it is, first first of all, I think it's perfectly plausible possible to imagine that we can decrease quite dramatically actually our prison population at the moment. Uh, If we are thinking uh, kind of strictly in terms of who's posing a public threat to our safety, um, a very substantial number of people in prison at the moment are not necessarily dangerous uh, offenders uh, in that sense. Um, For example, I mean, there are ongoing campaigns for many years now uh, for the decarceration of uh, of women uh, in prison in particular, um, as a kind of a unique population of women, uh, of prisoners who who I think we can even start uh, to consider uh, a reform from. Um, So there are particular prisoner populations that I think uh, enable us to think of reform or even of potentially some kind of abolition Um, But we are just politically not willing to do that. I mean, in the case of women prisoners, for example, we have seen that in the past couple of years, there was a decrease in their overall numbers. Um, There was um, kind of a collective uh, um, kind of understanding that uh, we need to use more community-based solutions in, in, in the case of women. And nonetheless, the government has recently announced that they are introducing 500 new spaces in prison for women. Um, without, no, without no clear rationale for why this is happening. So effectively, we need kind of political and economic investment in, in going in the opposite direction. Um, otherwise, um, we, we won't even persuade the public, first of all.
2: You know, my question is a rather crude one. We can all agree where we are now is intolerable. We imprisoned too many people for too long in conditions that are destructive in a whole range of ways rather than constructive. That's clearly true. The question is Is our response to that going to be, as far as possible, decarceration? We keep prisoners going as far as, long as we have to. We try to reduce the harm they do. But in the end, our aim is to, if we can, abolish them. Or should we say instead, look, there is a role for prisoners. They could be rendered more constructive environments where we could send people, not just to lock them up um, as dangers, but as an appropriate response to their crime. So I don't know whether, whether can we re envisage prisons, so they could become a legitimate part of the penal system, or could they only be the last resort, of somewhere we end up throwing people because we can't do anything else with them? Um, I don't know what the answer. I'd like to use the former institute. We could imagine prisons which aren't simply um, harmful and destructive. And took, <laughs> to
3: the,
1: sorry. So drawing on some themes from some of the questions, so one of some of the worries are that there's something about imprisoning someone that's somehow arbitrary. And one of the sort of themes of your answers have been, well, is there a way to reimagine this so it's more fitting for the crime? I wonder what the panelists think about the use of um, or greater involvement of victims in the sentencing or the punishing process. Because right now punishment is it's assumed by the state. The state takes on the role of the prosecutor on behalf of the victim. And it's a sort of agent of the state that, um, decides the sentence. And there's a complaint among victims even that the role of the victim in the criminal justice system is, is pushed to the side or, or marginalised. I wonder if you think that um, having, having a more prominent role for victims in determining sentences or um, punishing would be a way to um, solve some of these issues. I'm seeing some shaking of the heads. But, so this draws together some themes from the questions that there mm. might be a, a, a a different way to do this that relies on the victim to a greater extent but um so ex- yeah you can maybe explain why you mm. think that's a bad idea
0: i I, mean, I would say victims are very poorly treated in the system and uh, i mean it's not our poor business but we're we've been helping to um the secretary of a commission which is looking at the truth how the most serious crime is punished from the perspective of both perpetrators and from victims and um and a lot of what is coming up from victims is, is that they feel forgotten by the system. Um, and they feel forgotten by the system, particularly after the after the point of sentence, so not at the point of sentence. But, but there is a huge problem with the idea of victims being more involved in the sentencing decision. And that, that problem is the forgiving victim, because you end up with a completely arbitrary sentence, depending on the personal approach of the victim. So. You know, the, it, it is, is the response to a murder or a rape or child abuse properly in the hands, or whether or not the victim has a particularly forgiving nature or not? And um, I, I, I don't think there's a way around that problem. Uh, I think you have to you have to remove the victim from the decision about the extent of punishment. Um,
2: it's a mistake to say the prosecutor is there on behalf of, in the role of the victim. That's not what the prosecutor is doing. The prosecutor is there on behalf of the whole community. It's we collectively who are prosecuting and punishing. So that's why the victim shouldn't have a definitive say. Um, I, I agree with Peter that there are dangers there. You could imagine a process post conviction where there's a discussion involving the offender and, willing, the victim and a representative of the community, whether a racial officer or whoever, discussing what would an appropriate sentence be. And that would then go back to the court for approval. And that, and that would be a possible way of involving victims if they so wished. Um, but in a discussion, not simply saying, I think you should get 10 years, but discussing with the offender what would be, be appropriate. If appropriate still not just to the victim, appropriate to the community as a whole. Um, so I view the they're badly treated, but the answer is not to then give them a, a role in sentencing.
3: Yeah, I agree. I think victims have um, certainly been neglected um, in much of how we have done punishment so far. And and part of the problem with our current kind of um, uh, over-reliance on punishment is the fact that we have institutionalized it um, and and we have kind of taken it away from communities to some extent. Um, So I I agree that I, I think victims Um, ought to be involved more in the process and ought to have a a chance to to engage with the offender and with their wider community, uh, perhaps in some kind of restorative justice type of conference or something of that kind that that has, there is some evidence to suggest that these kinds of approaches are actually quite beneficial for all all the parties involved. Um, I'm not sure that I would think that they need to be involved in the sentencing or in, in in deciding a kind of penalty Um, but in a restorative justice kind of context that wouldn't necessarily be a conversation um, only about imposing a kind of penalty it might be a conversation about how the the offender might make amends more generally Um, uh, it might involve a conversation about how they might engage in a particular community-based initiative or some kind of activity. Um, so there, I think there is something interesting there about mutually agreeing what will be the solution to the problem uh, or to the conflict that takes place in the event of a crime. And, and there is something interesting um, with that idea of kind of a mutual conversation uh, that's kind of dominant in restorative justice um, discussions. Uh, but certainly uh, I would be very hesitant if we were to maintain our system as it is right now and just uh, ask victims to impose sentences I think that would be quite problematic.
1: so in general there's skepticism about the role of victims in sentencing but agreement that victims could play a, a larger role in punishment to some extent um, in the general process well,
2: there need to be at least to be kept Better informed of what's going on, and that's minimal. Um, I think the, the idea of a victim impact statement, as a contribution to the trial, I mean, it's good sense. Like what happened to me, but that shouldn't—that should not be part of sentencing. In a, way, a recommendation, it should affect the sentence. Part of the reasons Peter gave that, um, depending on how willing your victim is to speak or how articulate they are, that would make a difference to your sentence. So I. Mean, I, I Information, yes, a role is testifying what happened to them, yes. Beyond that, not a formal role in sentencing, except in the kind of way I was talking about, which might involve a kind of R.J. process. But even that would then need to be approved by the court as being an appropriate outcome.
1: Okay. so to sum up, I'll, I'll take the most voted question. I've tried to weave in some of the audience questions so far, but the most upvoted question is quite helpful because it might help us draw some um, lessons from the discussion so the question is that Anthony Duff suggested earlier that those who are punished should be treated as rational agents with dignity and that they deserve to have their punishment justified to them this seems to me to be right but if this is a criteria for punishment to be legitimate what other criteria might there be what else would we add to the list
2: two minutes I <laughs> <laughs> um Well, punishment must be a proportionate response to the crime, for a start. Um, It must be what you could portray as a way in which the offender makes amends what they've done, as a further consideration.
0: I'd say that punishment must always respect the humanity of the person who's being punished. And uh, the, the extent of punishment is determined by the law and by the sentence and cannot be added to by sort of administrative discretion or neglect.
3: For me, um, going back to um, Anthony's claim about um, thinking about the offender as kind of an agent, I think it's really important when thinking about punishment to understand um, the implications or the long-term consequences that punishment can have on on, on, a, on an, an agent or someone who uh, has a, a very particular background, a set of experiences, who has uh, a, a series of um, traumas or, or experiences of abuse coming into a place like a prison, for example. And that background context is something that uh, punishment ought to take account of. Um, and it needs to be responding uh, in a way that seeks to precisely prevent Uh, uh, future harms. Uh, If it can't prevent those future harms then it's not fulfilling its purpose.
1: Okay, Um, thanks very much. Those all seem like very plausible lessons. Um, So we're out of time unfortunately, Um, so I'd like to thank um, our three panellists Anthony, Peter and Anna. Um, That was a really great discussion, I enjoyed it. Um, very much and I wish we had longer um, to keep talking but we're out of time unfortunately so um, on behalf of um, the audience I'd like to say um, thanks very much thank you to the audience um, for your questions um, and I hope everyone um, enjoyed the discussion so thanks very much everyone
0: thank you for listening you can subscribe to the LSE events podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next we hope you join us at another lse event soon